0: I want to welcome everybody to Reunions 2012. Thank you for braving the forecast to be here. We really appreciate that, and we know the events are just kicking off at 11 o'clock. My name is Amy Carr. I'm with the School of Nursing. My colleague Angie Dempsey is there in the front row. Um, And another uh, nursing uh, person is here, Sharon Cumbie-Fay, if there are any nursing alumni, who's the president of the Nursing Alumni Association, is here as well. So welcome, welcome to her. I'm going to introduce our speakers in a second, Dean Dory Fontaine and Dr. Jonathan Truitt. So I'll introduce them both, and then I believe Dean Fontaine is going to get us started. So first I'd like to introduce Dean Dory Fontaine from the School of Nursing. A passion for critical care nursing underlies the distinguished career of Dory Fontaine as clinician, scholar, researcher, educator, and professional leader. Since coming to the UVA School of Nursing, Dr. Fontaine has implemented appreciative inquiry methodology as the basis for the school's strategic planning and launched an interdisciplinary process to create a transformational model to provide compassionate end-of-life care across the healthcare spectrum. In addition, she's been a strong advocate for interprofessional education, engaging both medical and nursing faculty and students in collaboration with the Dean of the School of Medicine. Dr. Fontaine's teaching has centered on issues related to critical care including sleep promotion, pain relief, and family presence at the end of life. Most recently, she has investigated strategies to promote promote nursing education partnerships, diversity, and interprofessional education in university settings. Her priorities as dean at UVA include continued work in promoting healthy workplace environments, building more interprofessional collaborations, and increasing diversity in both the faculty and student populations. Our second speaker, Dr. Jonathan Truitt is the E. Cato Drash Professor of Medicine, Senior Associate Dean for Clinical Affairs, and Chief Medical Officer at the University of Virginia. The focus of his administrative work is in improving care access, delivery, and outcomes for patients at UVA, while fostering innovative care services and delivery systems. He remains clinically active in pulmonary and critical care medicine and has NIH support for clinical research in acute lung injury. So thanks again to both of our speakers, and I'll turn it over to Dean Fontaine. Great.
1: Great. Well, thank you so much. Let me get the clicker here, and I'm going to come out and stand in front of you all. I got to say hello to some folks, so I know that we have nurses. Nurses in the crowd? A couple of nurses in the crowd. Men nursing, too. Um, How about docs? Docs in the crowd? Yeah, wonderful. And I met a dentist, so that's terrific. And I'm sure there's lots of other people, too. So thanks so much for being here with us. Um, I'm very honored to do this talk with my esteemed colleague, Dr. Jonathan Truitt. And you just need to know that I came here four years ago from the University of California, San Francisco. And I'd been at Georgetown and University of Maryland before that. And I really, this is the very best place. But I have to say, when I first got here, I wanted to be credible. I'm a critical care nurse. So I spent, uh, I guess I was here for a week, and I was in the medical ICU, buddied up with a, a real nurse, taking care of a very sick patient that day. And, um, of course, Jonathan Truitt was the attending physician, making rounds and doing his usual quizzing everybody. And do you remember that um, I answered a question on rounds? Of course I got it wrong. But everybody was so impressed that I had the guts to, you know, <laughs> here I was a few days, a few days at UVA and in the ICU. So. And we've been actually good colleagues and friends ever since then. So, we're going to talk about this topic today about nurse practitioners and physicians and healthcare reform and will it really um, help us to look at each other, respect each other in some new ways. And I have some content, um, 15 minutes or so, and then Dr. Truett has as well from his background experience. And then we really want to have at least 20 minutes or more for questions because I know that you have them. So, here is our agenda. We're going to talk about it's really about the needs of the public for healthcare. Nurses and physicians, a little bit about the workforce data, which can be um, a surprise to many. And then we're going to really focus on nurse practitioners, one aspect of the nurse workforce and physicians as looking at how they can collaborate to help really redesign what I consider redesign healthcare. And will healthcare reform change us is kind of the the subtext, even though there's a lot of um, interesting things going on. So this is what's right here at University of Virginia. This is um, Nita Regal, who's a nurse practitioner and a UVA alum in a heart failure clinic, working with a wonderful, well-respected cardiologist on heart failure, Dr. Jim Bergen. And just to let you know, if you have some ideas about what, how NPs and docs work together, that this is a pretty unique relationship. Many people think that nurse te- practitioners just take care of the simple things like colds and you know, whatever. And in fact, if you talk to these two, they'll say that, you know, in all honesty, Dr. Bergen sees all the new patients and looks at all the individuals that come to the clinic. And it's Nita, actually, who's taking care of the complex ones because they require a lot of on the phone and, you know, getting out and seeing them and titrating the drugs and meds. And so this is kind of a a unique relationship. And it's right here at the University of Virginia. I don't know where Jim Bergen trained, but we trained Nita Regal. Did he train? Okay, so we like Kansas, too. But he's actually incredible. And, you know, heart failure. We like Kansas, too. Heart failure is going, you know, like this in this country. And we're keeping people well at home. And it's because of teams like this who collaborate really, really well. And it's all because of what? Collaboration. They know each other, trust each other, respect, integrity, and, of course, competence. So, what about the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act? You know, it was passed a while ago now, and it's sitting in the Supreme Court, and if we gave this talk two months from now, we'd have some pretty exciting things to say, right? So you'll just have to guess, um, because right now we really don't know what's gonna happen, you know, and if you listen to the talking heads, you know, you can go any which way. So we'll have to wait and see what really is gonna happen. But no matter what, things are gonna change. There are 34 million uninsured in this country. The other number is the state of Virginia, 600,000, 600,000 uninsured in the state of Virginia, which is huge. So there's a lot of room for all of us to make an impact. This is a physician in Richmond who has um, made this quote in a p- paper I read out of Richmond. However one might feel about health care reform, current trends are pointing in the direction of change. So no matter which way things go, there's just going to be changes, and we are preparing the workforce. I say in the School of Nursing as the dean, I'm preparing the 21st century nurse. It's going to be a lot different than you know, 1972 when I came out of school. All right, 3.1 million. That's the number of nurses in the United States, 3.1 million, it is, it is increasing. But the fear is that there's still not gonna be enough. And just for those of you that are not in the healthcare profession but are very interested, about 50% of nurses in this country are still prepared at the associate degree level, two-year degree. We prepare four-year nurses here. There's a big push to get people Driven into baccalaureate prepared, so they can become nurse practitioners, so they can become teachers, clinicians at an expert level, and go on and get PhDs and DNPs. So there's 3.1 million. Um, only about 10, little over 10 percent are prepared at the master's and graduate level. Nurse practitioners in Virginia, there's about 4,600. Okay, and so if you kind of match, okay, there's going to be 600,000 people who need care who don't have Access right now you just have to be thinking about that most of them are family nurse practitioners But there's a growing group that work with dr. Truett called acute care nurse practitioners Family pediatric what we're really missing in this state is psychiatric nurse practitioners You know how the psych needs of the public are increasing we read about that a lot. There's only 40 can you believe? It? There's only 40 NPs in psychiatric care in the state of Virginia, so I would love to increase that number too All right, my thing is not moving, there we go. So how about physicians? And Dr. Truitt will speak to this as well, but there's 100,000 more physicians are gonna be needed. Absolutely, we need more docs and we also need about a million more nurses by 2020. (coughs) Right now we're not having trouble driving up the uh, interest in nursing. There's 75,000 people on waiting lists across the country who are qualified but can't get into nursing schools because there's not enough faculty, and there's not enough clinical sites, you know. But nursing is getting to be very attractive. You need to know that um, sitting in my class right now today in summer school um, is Jimmy Howell, who was number eight on the football team last year. Man enough to be a nurse. Yes, Jimmy Howell's in my program. Now, the NFL, he's trying out. I hear he's trying out. He's the punter. He was great course, every time he missed a um, field goal last year, or every time he didn't do a good punt last year, somebody would lean over and say, he's going to nursing school. And I'm like, yes, you know. <laughs> but he's wonderful. He's wonderful. Six foot five, you know, the, everyone just loves him. So he's in class. They just took a pathophysiology test today. His father's a nurse, you know. So I think there's, there's a lot of trends we're seeing. It's very, very positive to get more wonderful people. He's an example of a growing group that's coming into nursing. They have degrees in other fields. His is in anthropology. We're getting people that are, you know, been in accountants. There's a lawyer that's graduating this past uh, May. One of our, our uh, students was an attorney in Chicago. She's going to do psych, psych nursing. All right, so back to the program here. Only 32% of physicians go into primary care. This is one of the statistics. Oh, let me go back. And... Research indicates the quality of care provided by nurse practitioners is comparable to that of physicians. Dr. Truitt is going to review some of these studies as well. Um, Lots of controversy here, but I thought I would just put that out there. This is from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, and this is a picture of Chris Peterson, one of our docs, working with an NP over here in the Women's Health Clinic and student health. So the Institute of Medicine came out with a report in October of 2010 that that really shook everybody up. Donna Shalala chaired this report along with a nurse colleague from uh, California. And what this said was that nurses really needed to be better educated, meaning that all those AD graduates, we need to really have 80% of them get baccalaureates by 2020. So that's the 80 by 20. 80% of nurses should have a baccalaureate by 2020. I think that's a stretch goal for sure. It also said that nurses need to be at the table with physicians when we redesign healthcare. And I'm very proud to say that our new president here put me on the Medical Center Operating Board. She was here for six weeks, and I had been asking and asking, and they told me I could come and sit in the back of the room. And I said, no, I'm going to come when I sit next to Dean Dukoski at the table. And so in six weeks, boom, she convinced them to... um, I don't know if you even knew I wasn't allowed to come until then. But anyway, so the other important ingredient is that nurses need to be practicing at the full scope of their license. So here we are training nurses to do all sorts of incredible things, and then they get out and practice in certain states, Virginia is one of them, and they're not allowed to practice at the full scope of their license. So this is an issue. All right, the blue states are the ones that have practice issues in terms of nurse practitioner scope. The purple states are independent autonomous practice for nurse practitioners. You can see they're more in the west coast, okay? and in the tippy part up in the east, and I know we have somebody from New Hampshire there. Are you purple in here? Yes, good, all right, Well, we'll love when you ask us questions. So what we're trying to do in the state of Virginia, the legislature is looking at um, passing an act to really look at the scope of practice for nurses in the state of Virginia and help to widen it a little bit. And we are doing this directly with our physician colleagues and Bill Hazel, who's the Secretary of Health, has been very, very helpful in helping us look at this and removing the supervisory language. Now, the language now is team-based care led by a physician. Some people had a fit over that. I really didn't because, you know, I know docs like Dr. Truitt here who, you know, when you're in the ICU, that really is okay, you know. But I know that there are nurse practitioners in some states that are hanging up their own shingle, and maybe there's people that have issues about that. We can talk. All right. Hmm? the The other color. There's purple... Uh, the other color is a very light blue, and I believe that there's some restrictions on that. And I'd have to dig out my glasses to tell you exactly what that is. Prescribe. Prescri- oh, it's about prescribing. Okay, thank you, thank you for that. No, that's fine. Okay, so this is a picture of a practice in Culpeper, which, you know, UVA and Culpeper have a wonderful relationship together. And, in fact, this is a nurse practitioner and a physician colleague, and as people come in on the wall, there's, here's all the people you're going to see nurse practitioners and physicians, and they work very, very well together. And that's a picture of the physician and some of the nurses there. So what are we doing at the University of Virginia to help with some of these solutions, um, to get people ready for the workforce that we're going to need? So we're going to implement the IOM report. We're trying to take more RNs with associate degrees and turn them into baccalaureate prepared. We're preparing nurse practitioners in four specialty areas, and we always have many more applications than we can fill. And we're also helping to design new models of care, again with Dr. Truett and some of our other colleagues. One of the things that we're doing is focusing in a big, big way on interprofessional education. The way to help nurses and docs work better together in the field for life is to train them together when they're students here at the University of Virginia. So I'm proud to say we're doing a lot of great work in this. This is a nursing student and a medical student. You can't tell who is who, but they're, this is at the RAM Clinic, the remote area medical clinic in Southwest Virginia where we go together. 33 nurses and medical students work hand in hand and take a course on culture and doing skills, and they're teaching each other. And they come back with a pretty incredible respect for the talent and skills of each other this is what we're doing here too as well nurses and physicians working together as students teaching each other and we just got a big grant last year the Macy Foundation funded um, almost three quarters of a million for us to look at how we teach third year every single third year nursing and medical student together in, in several important ways It's not just about skills this is about difficult conversations at end of life using standardized patients how you give patients and families bad news Um, And I think we're having some some great success, so stay tuned for more of that. Here's another example of nursing students and medical students working right together. So we're one of the top schools in the country right now here in Charlottesville doing this kind of work. So it's not about relationships. It is really only about the relationships that we form. And to just say, um, to go back to Nita and um, Jim, Uh, I think that these are the partnerships that we want to forge um, for nurse practitioners and physicians in our state and for the country because patients are better served when we all work well together. It's all about patient, it's all about quality care. I was on the Health Reform Task Force and we often talk about, well, what about quality? Well, the quality is actually good when people work together. Patients and families expect that, that we're gonna work better together. So I think we have to change our perspective and I am very, very patient. I've been talking about interprofessional education for a decade. And then I came to UVA and found an opening and some people that were ready to make it happen. And it's okay to go slowly, but we shouldn't be stuck. We shouldn't be stuck. And my last um, message here, this is a picture of a porcupine. I often talk about nurses and docs using this analogy. And the story that goes along with this porcupine picture is that on a very cold day, a group of porcupines were together trying to get warm, and they had to kind of shuffle in and shuffle out and shuffle in and shuffle out. Why? So they could find the right distance where they could get warm without getting pricked. And I actually think that's kind of a message for nurses and physicians. How do we kind of get close to each other and understand and truly respect each other for what each brings to the patient encounter without kind of getting pricked and jumped on? All right, I'm gonna turn it over. I'm not gonna stop here for questions because I, I think you want to listen to Dr. Truett, um and his immense wisdom.
2: Thank you, Dory. So um, first of all, when I do rounds, if you get the question right, it leads to more questions. That's how I do rounds. We never left this room because Dory kept getting the questions right. So I said, geez, he's really making this hard. I finally just said, um, what's the weather outside? She hadn't looked, she says, it's raining. I said, it's sunny, okay, we can move on. So, um, so, I guess I want to start off with um, the barriers because Dory's made a nice uh, case for. just um, so bad. Dory's made a nice case for the need and the fact that the quality, which we're we'll talking about, is is excellent, but it hasn't happened so well in lots of places, including Virginia. So I guess let's start off with the first question. This is the audience participation. You didn't know this, did you? There's an audience participation portion. I didn't know until now either. So what are the barriers? Why does this have trouble taking traction? A threat.
3: There's a sense of threat.
2: Are you saying that I am threatened? I'm not saying anybody's
3: threatened because I don't want to be attacked here. I just want to... <laughs> <laughs> I think
2: she's 100% on the money. Okay. So the way also I do rounds is if I really come at you, you're right, you gotta stand your ground, okay? So if I come after you, you should say, whoa, the medical students start to really shake, and the rest are going, give give it to them, give it to them, okay? All right, so a threat, that's one of it. And a threat meaning um, control, right? So I just wanna ask this question, do nurses ever have issues with control as a threat? I want to ask you what a PCA does, an LPN does, an RN does, and an NP does, and tell me how you guys have made this like, oh no, can't be doing that. Your line stops here. I have been to clinic. We have medical assistants now that are not nurses. Whoa, that's a nursing job, that's a nursing job all right. So I got to tell you that the threat is an everywhere, but I think she's hundred percent of the money.
4: Well, it's a new dynamic, so
2: totally new dynamic. Totally or not, and I'm gonna ask you where it's not a new dynamic. Dory and I happened to have a very close link before she arrived here, because we practice in the same arena. I can tell you, it is not a new phenomena in the ICU. Absolutely not. You go across that door to the wards, and it is a totally new phenomena, you go outside the building, and it's a foreign phenomenon. So I agree, it's a totally new dynamic, but not an unpracticed dynamic, just locked in a 12-bed unit or a 16-bed unit. So I would agree, but I'd also say maybe we should be looking where it does work. Where well, actually, I think we have. That's what's figured this out. Yeah,
5: I was going to say the
2: reimbursement issues. Money. It's all about money. Yeah, i got to make sure my wallet's still here. I got it. All right. I
3: think it has to do with, you know, scope of practice and then credentialing
2: practices in each state. Yeah, it would be nice if the states would get together. Just, you know, for the physicians across, you get an MD degree, it doesn't work across any states. California looks at me and says, whoa, you can't come here. You didn't take CLEX. You took FLEX or whatever. they. I don't even know they are anymore, but they had different rules. So I agree
0: for both the nurse practitioners and the physician's times in a practice. So
2: do the administrative gain to the insurance companies? Or no, it's just even the practitioners. Just the as documentation. As, oh
0: my gosh, documentation yeah. as well as time goes for you know, physician's time of what they have to do administratively too.
2: Yeah, and we don't really get paid for that supervision that I, that I remember, okay? At least I, my wallet got no thicker, okay? Okay, so we're gonna move on. So, but thank you, I totally think you're right. So I put it down as here's here's the things I thought were barriers, um, which you all nailed. Quality, because that is why I'm uh, that's this is the mystique of control. It's really about control, but it's a lot easier to say you know you're just not trained enough in two years. I've trained seven years. It's about quality. That's a really great way of a smokescreen. It does challenge my degree. And I'll show you one of the slides later. My wife is a nurse, a school of nursing, and uh, the first thing she said to me is, maybe you have it wrong. Not my slide. Medical school. Economics 101. We'll talk a little bit about that. And control. Let's figure out how this works, obviously. Yeah, how did you get that work? All right. Dory protected you. I was going to show you all the data and all the slides and all the graphs she said what are you crazy pretty much like that so let me just tell you there are 37 studies out there that have some of them are randomized controlled trials some of them aren't but you know you know every study that came out in this 37 the nurse practitioner was equal to the MD whether it was an outpatient setting an ICU setting Uh, acute care setting, and what they measured, the nurse practitioner was not necessarily better, but definitely not worse. And when they looked at patient satisfaction, they looked at uh, activity daily living, and independent activity daily living, things that patients care about, absolutely the same, if not better. Glucose cholesterol control, probably better by the nurse practitioner, certainly for me, if I'm in clinic, I'm an intensivist. Your cholesterol has to be right for one day. day you're in my unit and then somebody else's problem so blood pressure control i'm trying i'm an icu doc i'm trying to get the blood pressure up you guys are pushing it down i said dad get out of the way all right hospitalization rates ed rates all the same so on a quality issue it is this is take it off the table it is not an issue i mean we can do another 37 studies this is an issue of perception, not reality. This should be taken off the table. Med schools are trying to figure out what to do. We need more doctors, we need more med students, but it takes seven years. I've got to go to med school for four years, after college for four years. And then I've got to do three years of training at a minimum. Essentially, I don't really have to, by the way. I could actually practice. You really probably would rather have me do my residency, so I'd have some clue. So you like to do, so it's seven years, where for a nurse practitioner, I should say it's three years because the first year really is an integration year. So I think it's three because the nurse practitioner gets the degree and the first year is sort of a transition year. And the docs say med school is much more competitive. Well, okay, maybe, maybe not, but who cares? Because if the patients get the same care at the end of the day, do we care? Med school tuition is much more. That is why we've got to charge more. I mean, I'm paying for one son at Duke and one son at Virginia just graduated, and i got to tell you, I want to know what Duke's offering except for $35,000 more. <laughs> and the problem is, is that second son's parents are both Duke undergrads. So we really couldn't say no because we sort of have a little loyalty. But the first son saved me a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> um, both outcomes are similar, so really it's not... It, this this is, this is a problem that we got to deal with. And some people are saying, well, maybe we should view primary care different than specialty care. Maybe we should target things differently. Because the majority of nurse practitioners are still in primary care, although that is changing. All right. So you can have your cake and eat it. This is an interesting way about this. So one thing you need to know is that a family MD is trained so that 85% of all the diagnoses that come in, he or she can take care of. So we're trained to know horses, but we are got to know those zebras too because you know they might show up? We've got to be ready. But if you take the top 10 reasons people come to the clinic, 80% if not 100% can be handled by the nurse practitioner or the family MD. Patients don't come in saying, I want to talk to you about this disease I haven't had yet, but I think I might, well actually they do. But so for the most part, they don't come in with something really strange, okay? So they may sound strange, but then it's really a horse, not a zebra. Because the problem is when you miss the zebra, ooh, that is bad. I have to tell you that it's not a good thing when you miss something you should have caught. Because people let you know you missed it, and you don't really like that because they don't let you know, like, sorry, you missed it. They let you know, like, I'm really upset you missed it. Your lawsuit missed it, or I'm mad with you. I'm switching doctors missed it, things like that. So they get a little upset. So I think the cake is 80%. The 20% is the icing here. So basically, we really have a system that could work in parallel if we just look at it. All right, so here is a problem, and uh, the nurse practitioners in the room are going to be much better than the nurse as I am because I still haven't figured it out. I'm trying to understand it, but I don't get it. For the same work, the nurse practitioner gets paid 85 cents on the dollar. Same work, same outcomes, less money. Oh, that's right, your tuition was less. I forgot, that's why. One of the problems that I want to talk about is that nurse practitioners end up adding cleanup. That's because they can save time, but they don't expand the business. There are costs added if you don't increase your population. So if you say we want to expand our practice by nurse practitioners but we're really not going to expand our practice we're going to give free time to somebody else that's kind of interesting so you're going to pay for quality okay you're going to pay for free time okay but you know when they're paying less per visit you can need to expand your number of visits so this is actually a poor use i think of a nurse practitioner healthcare is a fee for service this is such a dumb thing i love it you come to me and you got a problem. You know, we could block that. We, we could give you a cough medicine, but you know, bronchoscopy is really the way to know for sure. I mean, for sure that there's not an endobronchial lung cancer in there. I, I know you don't smoke, but we really want to be sure, okay? And I got a, I got a duke tuition to pay, you know? Boom, it's going in. This is the, one of the only businesses where you get to pay for what's done as opposed to, uh, and it's even better because you're not paying. You're paying the same rate for insurance. You're paying the copay, essentially. So, this is a problem that other countries have figured out, but we have yet to figure this out. And I guess June 16th, we'll know if we figured out something. So, not paid for, uh, we're not paid on delivering health, by the way. We will start to be paid finally for the quality of care. That's like a big change. Gee, I mean, when you get your car fixed and it doesn't work, what do you do with it? You bring it back, right? And do they charge it? Not always. Sometimes they say, actually, we did mess up. We'll, we'll, we'll write this under. So this is a really cool study. The VA in the Midwest, it's beautiful. I'm a VA physician, I get paid salary X. I'm a VA nurse practitioner, I get paid salary X. By the way, if I see more patients in the VA system, no one says, well, here's a little extra dollars. I don't think the VA doesn't work this way. They say, you got your shift, you got your your time, and have a nice day. So there really is no incentive to argue over the money in the VA system. It's really about getting the patients Cared for the VA system. And by the way, if you don't know, this is just an advertisement on the site. The VA system, which was ranked the lowest in quality about 15 years ago, rose to the top in quality in 10 years. Okay? So if you're going to say the VA care is not tops, I would argue really hard with you right now. All right. So what happened? This is where it became obvious it was about control to some extent. So that when you ask a nurse practitioner what his or her role is, they say, well, it's an autonomous practice with a physician uh, backup as needed. And the MPs felt accepted by the MDs, that's good. The ND's perspective, he or she would say, well, the NP is akin to a physician extender. Valued teaching interpersonal skills leading to greater patient satisfaction. That doesn't sound autonomous to me. That sounds like, you know, they're important to the team, but not autonomous. nurse practitioner sees that as autonomous. So, when they surveyed people, the nurses said, You know, we are autonomous, but we're not working to the top of our license. And the Midwest is the great center of collaboration. That's why Kim's from Kansas that actually works. Concerned uh, the NPs would not be allowed to practice independently because uh, there's not a lot of trust here. The physicians were worried that, well, the NP is going to practice at the top of his or her license. Uh, capabilities, but there's no supervision. They're going to they're gonna phone it in. Oh, I took care of the, uh, the MI on Mr. Jones, and he's going home in two days, and we were going to think of kariah but he's fine. Have a nice day. Okay? So the problem there was, what's the right range of degree of supervision if one needs to happen? The worst scenario in nurse practitioner autonomy is that the MD says, thank you very much for seeing the patient, but I'm gonna write my own note, I'm gonna review, I'm gonna do the diagnosis, I'm gonna do the treatment, and I'm gonna write the plan in the separate note, and by the way, thank you for submitting the bill. I mean, I don't know what else is gonna happen. This is like, you're An in-between zone is that the MD reviews the diagnosis and treatment plan and could write a separate note, and the reason he or she writes a separate note is simply because they'd like to be able to bill at the 100%, not the 85%. Uh, I have yet to meet many physicians who like writing notes. So it's not high on their list. And then the other option is full autonomy, where the MD, at the end of the day, reviews the charts and says, yep, these look good and have a nice day. And theoretically, in many states, they have to do that at a minimum. Uh, I'm not sure. If, I don't know about the purple states, per se, on that. Well, actually, I see the purple working great in the outpatient setting, primary care and specialty care. So, Nita Regal's case, or the lung transplant, she's heart transplant and a heart failure, lung transplant, nurse practitioners. The more complicated and time consuming those patients are, actually, I see this as a great spot for uh, independent practice as well as primary care. The blue area is kind of where I think I live, and that's in the ICU, where I think there is actually more of a team effort and more of a shared uh, approach. Um, and because the nurse practitioners at UVA are hired by the medical center, I have to write a separate note, which is the most stupid thing, because it's a beautiful note I said, well, thank you for telling me everything I'm going to write, and I have to look at it and say, okay, yep, 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 which is a stupid thing, but that's okay. All right. So I, I show this slide because it's disappointing to me. This is what trauma surgeons, how they incorporate nurse practitioners and PAs in their service. The nurse practitioner does the daily note, does the dictation discharge summary, assists the trauma resuscitation, and dictates history and physical exams. I call this scut work. There's no brain work here. So this, to me, is an opportunity for change in the trauma uh, setup. This paper is not too long ago. It's two years ago, so it's pretty recent. So I don't know that we have figured out how an NPND diet should be working. I have ideas, but so a lot of other people's, people. Still being decided. I think it's underutilized in lots of areas. I will tell you the MICU where we are now is still underutilizing it. We are growing. It's actually moving. It's advancing to more independent practice, practice but I can tell you where it started was not there at all. And overutilized in others, perhaps. All right. So I think if you're primary care, or I would want to say primary, I actually consider uh, Nita-Regal doing primary care for heart failure patients because basically I'm going to tell you when they have a heart problem, they don't call their uh, primary care physician, they call Nita-Regal. And that's also true for the transplant patients. Transplant patients are trained immediately. Don't let anybody touch your medicines except for us. And so they know whenever someone recommends an antibiotic, before they take it, they call and say, am I okay with this antibiotic? They're, because of all the interactions. All right. I think uh, specialty care is a good population here for uh, independent. And I think the hospital setting, acute care, IC or ED, are probably a better blend of um, parallel. Ooh. So at UVA, the nurse practitioner, not yet, depending on the attending in the ICU, is basically a resident. And that will happen once we have enough nurse practitioners, we'll probably run two services. Columbia runs two services, or they run mixed services. They actually, Columbia has five different models, and I guess the question, I actually asked this question, guessing the answer, the best model is where they put nurse practitioners and residents on the same team. Vanderbilt has two separate teams in the ICU. We will have a mixed team when we have enough nurse practitioners. So I think they, have their autonomy, they should have the autonomy of the resident, management, diagnosis, and treatment, team member. Uh, I will tell you that the residents, for me, I want to know everything going on with my patient, but I don't want to sit there and hold their hand. So I want to, like, you know, I, just give me blurbs. If you're going to do a procedure, just text me. So if I don't like the idea you're doing a procedure, I've got two minutes. I tell them to the follow up. If I don't answer you in two minutes, it's at two in the morning, and I still don't answer you in two minutes, that's a go. Okay. I often answer them with a go, but I want to know something else, why we're doing it, so that there's something else going on. Often it's a sign that something's going wrong with the patient, so I like to know that information. And, and primary care, uh, our specialists, I think there's much more autonomy for diagnosis and okay. treatment, and again, team member and collaboration. Oh, I don't have it on this slide. So I actually think the solution for our shortage in primary care is to have med schools still target specialty care, but have enough primary care physicians so that it could be a one-in-eight or a one-in-six relationship for a group practice of six to eight nurse practitioners with a, with a, with a uh, primary care specialist who is going to be there as the sounding board for the zebras and seek some patients, but really have a coordinated team. Because we really are going to have, I don't know how we're going to achieve so if you say you want more med schools, which were popping up left and right, it's about a 17-year proposition. we got a long way to go to get 17 years done. So I'm not sure that's the best solution. So I think there's a different balance and we need to be looking at things differently. Shorten the length of medical school for certain areas, lengthen it for others, um, and just things do different to collaborate. So I think that, is, that for sure is where we are stopping. Thanks.
1: All right, we have questions. You know, and on that last point, thank you, Jonathan. That was great. And um, I've been calling you Dr. Tristan. I know, I know. You're why calling you do me Dory, that. and I'm calling you Jonathan because we work together. She knows me together. pretty darn well. Yeah. so She keeps saying, Dr. Tracy, what are you doing now? Well, well, I was for? trying to show you this great respect I have for you. But now we're at the question okay, part. Okay, Dean Fontaine. Now we're at the question <laughs> part. We could be Dory. Not only Jonathan. do I have to show respect, she's my wife's boss.
2: Okay, yeah, so but I And I
1: have to love this one. Jeannie Erickson. <laughs> Dr. Jeannie Erickson is an incredible oncology expert and wonderful nurse. So. On this last point that you just made, um, I heard that Dr. Ed Miller, who's just stepping down from Hopkins and is on our Medical Center Board, has said we don't need more medical schools. What we really need is to allow nurse practitioners to practice at their highest scope of practice. Interesting. That was a a Mm -hmm. quote.
2: There's some balance. I'm not sure where it is. Some balance.
1: Yeah. So let's open it up for questions and um, hear what you have to say.
3: such an outspoken person in the obvious wonderful collaboration why hasn't someone been able to convince the Medical Society of Virginia? You know I'm gonna let
1: um, Jonathan you take that I recently read a paper that the AMA you know we're really working hard in nursing to collaborate with our groups and often it's on the ground people like the two of us that figured it out and how to work well together but our organizations often seem to be in these turf wars and battles, and I think that's what Susan is so,
2: alluding to. I'm not a member of the MSV. I'm not a member of the AMA. And I'm not a member of the ACP. Actively chose not to be a member of any of those three. They don't speak for me. They think different than me. The only problem, the only advantage they have is that they sit in the important seats of uh, the Virginia uh, Congress or DC, right? So i i go with the double because they speak more for me uh i That's go with the, the Mer- medical colleges yeah you know, american medical colleges um, should be north it should be the naamc because it's north america now oh. so uh they haven't changed uh i actually more special more physicians go for their specialties i'm a lung doctor critical care i'm the american thoracic society chest um american college of chest physicians so our voices are often represented through our academic societies or our specialty societies and not um, the practice societies. And I'm not sure that if you ask the practicing physicians in this room how many of them actually really support the MCV, the AMA, or the ACP, or the ADA, because I actually don't know the answer to that. Well, how do they get such a big voice in it? And They're, they're they organized.
3: they every year.
2: They're organized. Physicians do not know how to be organized, and they are organized.
3: This gentleman.
4: What is the percentage of doctors that are affiliated with these? I mean, I've heard is what, as low as 30% in, in AMA? Is that correct? Or? I have
2: no clue. So I'm hoping some in the audience has but a
4: clue. It's not like, I think a lot of people are under the misconception, you know, it's like, ninety percent or now. but your point is organization is critical
3: mm-hmm.
4: in yep. moving anything and and, and and steering the conversation. And remember right. my
2: specialty society is when we go to Congress, we're talking specifically what we want to target, you know, smoking, health uh, healthcare reform, we form a different so we're gonna target what's important for long as critical care. Because that's mm-hmm. that's what we're interested in, right? So
4: my, my general question would be, this goes back about 30 years, had no background other than Psych 1 and 2, but happened to be joyously employed by the Psych and Behavioral Medicine Unit here at the University of Virginia under Will Spradlin, and it was fantastic. And I, I think inpatient, you know, it no longer exists. And it was also the beginning of really an expansion of psychopharmacology as well. But he was using milieu. he was using whatever discipline, was uh, was useful and of course you'd have the med students come through and I worked in recreational therapy so it was interesting <laughs> i had you know i was a burden on the system drgs were coming this whole payment thing and it was you know it was an ironic situation but my question was is why do you think people become doctors or people become nurses, and I'm saying people because, again, at that time, you had men becoming nurses and becoming doctors, and people would come up to me and refer to me as a doctor just because I'm a male. So all these things were happening. Now it's 30 years later, but I had asked a number of med students why. If you hadn't gotten into med school, what would you have done. I had a buddy of mine that didn't get into med school and he went in and became a microbiologist. He stayed in the field. It was amazing the number of med students that said if they had not gotten into med school, they'd have gone to business school or law school. And what I saw was control and power (laughs) as opposed to I'm curious about the human body and and helping the
2: So, So the Great Promise when I went to med school, I'm an engineer. Come again? I'm an engineer. Okay. So the great promise of med school, of course, was, was total independence, was the quote-unquote. Let me just tell you, if you're a physician today, you can't spell the word independence, okay? Because I'm in your position, this is a fact, right? There, there is no independence anymore, okay? So that was the great promise. The problem we had is that we train people that pride is being totally responsible and totally knowledgeable, and you are in you can make sure that you can get your patient from A to B completely. We train them that way. We train them wrong. Business school doesn't, I love it when they say we're to a business school, because I now have my, my business degree. Business school trains you like an engineer. Everything's in a group. Six people move together. That's because the other five are smarter than the one, all right, being the one, all right? That's how they get you there, okay? So it really is that we select people Who have shown independence and we encourage that independence and control so I think it's actually we have to change the way we learn which is what's going on the IPE program
1: yeah I think you're making a good point you know we often have people who have decided to choose nursing even we've had some that have gotten into medical school and in the last five or more years they've been around some physicians who don't seem that happy Um, I think some of that can change too but um, we've had people choose nursing school because they've been around physicians who just seem to be more cranky than usual. And again, the the solution is, I think the solution is, and I love that uh, we have a gentleman here, um, Rocco, who is from New Hampshire. The solution is to have practice patterns where people feel they're doing meaningful work. They're both doing meaningful work. Everyone on the team is is you know respected and cared for, and the patient satisfaction is just huge. So. Um, I I really don't like this doc-nurse bashing and I don't engage in it um, because I think there's room for everybody you know the worst thing when I taught at Georgetown for 10 years in the 1990s you know we had to from day one have our nursing students who lived with School of Foreign Service people and others we had to train them to say all right if somebody says well you're so smart why are you going into nursing school and you're like oh god if I hear that one more time what do you want a dumb nurse you know let's let's be real about this you know let's be real so anyway let's get somebody else in and we'll come back how about you sir um two
4: real quick.
2: One is is there a greater acceptance in um places of uh lower population density where there's a greater demand for just any care oh we have fun with this is a great question we're gonna have fun with this and right then being, um <laughs> Is there anything that we can learn from outside of the United States?
1: Hmm.
2: Let me go for number one first, okay?
1: Yeah.
2: Hmm. So I don't know where you're from, but a lot of people in med school or nursing school say I want to come here because I want to go back to uh, Richlands, Virginia, which is out pretty distant, right? Tell you they get here and the you know the higher grounds, coffee, green berries, the movie theaters. We are not leaving. All right. it is actually hard to get physicians nurse practitioners to go to the more remote areas so even though there is a great need there you can't tell people where to work although you can in one group public health
5: public health if public pays. health
2: pays it yeah. you get two years yeah. of you know, year for year payback mm-hmm. and the reason we don't have public health programs anymore is because after my two years of payback i have less one but after i do my two years of payback mm-hmm. i move on to uh whatever okay so if I don't want to be in uh, Tuba City, Arizona, then I'll say I want to do a fellowship at UVA and become a pulmonologist mm-hmm. or something. So we've had people come from Tuba City, that's why i pick picking on that. Mm-hmm. The other issue, so we thought, uh, not we, because I don't want to be in that group, some people thought the reason we want nurse practitioners in the United States is, uh, How many people want to work nights only? Yeah. Oh, we well, actually, one? she does. <laughs> <laughs> And let me right, show you, her arm, her, her arm is broken at night.
1: Yeah. Let the tape reflect one out of 50. Uh, that was good, because
2: I, I, I knew the answer there, too. That's even worse. So she broke her arm tripping over a Foley catheter. And by the way, what's the first rule of Foley catheters? Take them out. Take them out right. So I think we have proof that this is another reason to take it out. So, um, so the answer is, is it's a terrific uh, concept. It doesn't play out.
1: When we need to incentivize people, for example, the 600,000 uninsured in Virginia, that number, a lot of them, guess where they live? Southwest Virginia is one place. So if people from here that we train are not necessarily going to go to work there, well, how about taking people, this is the fourth-grade strategy, take people that live there that maybe want to have careers in healthcare and somehow incentivize them with the right education to become nurses and then nurse practitioners. We have actually scholarships now from some wonderful donors that are trying to get nurses to become MPs and and stay in that community. So I wonder how it
2: plays out because the medical school did have scholarships for Southwestern physicians. Yeah. But you can't say you have to go back.
1: No. They didn't go back. Right. So actually have to come from there and wanna wanna improve the care of that community. It's a tough, it's a thorny challenge.
2: And to answer your other question, uh, Canada
1: is where I'd like to go
2: learn. I think Canada
1: Mm.
2: has not has learned from uh, the English, didn't quite go as far as the English, has actually got a good balance. I talked to physicians in Canada, they yeah. think this actually system is working pretty well, they wouldn't trade for the American system, and Toronto has probably one of the leaders of interprofessional practice. Yeah, that's so they actually have opportunities to learn from Toronto. Right. We had Toronto come down here uh, Do two years ago, faculty development on interprofessional practice. So it was a weekend uh, in January, maybe two years ago, yeah. something like that.
1: The rest of the world is struggling with a supreme nursing shortage and probably healthcare provider shortage in a lot of ways. So there's not a lot of models in other Mm -hmm. countries. Yeah, but it's a great question. And somebody over here.
3: Uh, I just thought it was interesting what you said about potentially having nurse practitioners and residents working together. Mm -hmm. Because being sort of fresh out of residency, I think part of the hesitance and maybe why nurse practitioners aren't utilized is because doctors aren't trained to utilize them. Um, you know, just coming out of training, I had I'm working with a nurse practitioner for the first time and have no idea what our collaborating practice should be or mm-hmm. what the limits or the scopes of her practice could be. So if you were if you had some cross educational things where doctors really saw everything that the nurses were getting educated in and vice versa. You might be able to partner a little bit better together.
2: So the next step after interprofessional education is interprofessional practice, right. and so we have to actually do what you're saying. Yeah,
3: and we we're
1: just putting in a grant. It's great that you're saying we're just putting in a grant with Dr. Gayswood, who runs primary care, and our Peds primary care nurse practitioner to train residents and nurse practitioners together, and actually do some of these markers you mentioned, and have them doing home visits together. Um, you know, if people are just watching TV then they're thinking, you know, Nurse Jackie and all these ridiculous shows about nursing, <laughs> and believe me, medical students, you know, that's what they're watching, hello, medical students have actually no idea what nursing students do, and frankly nursing students have no idea what medical students do. You mean MASH was wrong? MASH well, got it, MASH, well, there were some really great characters on MASH, and there have been some good shows, but you know, not recently, the portrayal, you know, if you really watch TV, then you'll think CPR works all the time.
5: Um,
3: which we know doesn't. It only works it only works on TV.
2: <laughs> so let's go here and then here. Oh, here, here. Sorry. Also that
3: physicians can do any procedure at all. You physicians are in there doing everything is what they do on TV. Oh. Oh yes. Physician will do they can do it all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Not that they can't. Um uh, I I come from more of the uh uh ancillary services. I'm a vascular sonographer, but I find that it is Easier uh, to talk to the uh, nurse practitioners and the physician's assistants because they are a little bit more approachable, are more ready to hear what you have to say, Um, will give you more answers in in a history uh, rather than the physician who's just three units down the hall already.
2: I'm not sure I can argue that, or or I I think it's, to be honest, I think it's going to be. Yes and no for that answer because there are going to be nurse practitioners that are going to be just like the physicians you're describing, and there's going to be physicians just like the nurse practitioners you're describing. So I, it may be slanted more one way or the other. But I, so the nurses will tell you that I'm different than the next attending, right? I may be worse. So I'm not saying I'm, they're not saying they're going. He's great. They're just saying he's different, right? But. Um,
1: so, I the good news said. about that, though, is that we are now focusing on how people should communicate. You know, in a decade, the whole business of how we give yeah. patients bad news, how we tell a patient we made a mistake, you know, we came up through the era don't say anything, don't say. Anything. Now it's like you can't apologize enough. Um, the other thing to, between, to, between to ourselves.
2: Trust. We also use S bars between ourselves. Yes,
1: how we so, talk with each Sarah. other. So, there's a lot. I think there's a new standard. I think even in med schools now, you can't get out unless you have certain communication um, um, that you meet certain markers for how you are able to communicate, and we are trying to train people together to pick up cues, to respect each other, and I think that you're going to see a, a new day because that, you know, the nurse is good, the doc's bad, the doc's good, the nurse, you know, we got to get off of all of that. It's, if we're all on a team, you know, how do we best take care of the patient? And the best way is really to respect each other and show the patient that we're working together rather than at, you know, odd points.
2: We're here, here, we'll come back here, but we got...
1: I, I'm not in the medical field, and so I. are we. <laughs> you Explain touched on
0: it, but teaching. I don't. I, I hear about physicians assistants and kids going back to school to become physicians assistants, and I don't understand where they interface
3: or where their support is. I yeah. see nurse practitioners have mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. a great deal of support, a whole nursing society yeah. culture behind them, mm-hmm. and doctors mm-hmm. have that, and.
2: I'll be curious. I'm going to let her answer is, first because we may actually disagree on this.
3: Okay. How does the PA well, I. To this time?
1: Yeah, and you know, I get a lot of questions about this because I'll have people that want to talk to me about should, what should I do for grad school. What are you thinking? And so I will guide people. You know, nurse practitioners do have the ability to have an autonomous license. Okay. Physicians assistants practice on the physician's license. That's the, the big one of the big differences. Having said that. There are brilliant, wonderful physicians' assistants all over America that work very collaboratively with NPs, and sometimes you can't tell the difference in the practice arena. When I was uh, growing a program at Georgetown, I had the first acute care MP program in the District of Columbia in 1995, and I wanted my NPs to be trained at the Washington Hospital Center, which did the most hearts of any place in town. And I kept going to see Dr. Art St. Andre, who you probably know. And he kept throwing me out of his office saying, I don't think you have enough of this in the curriculum. I don't think you have enough of that. And I went back the next year. Remember, I said I was very patient. Well, he had invested in PAs very heavily. They were in the ICU. They were all over. So finally, I said to him, what would make you say yes, which I've learned? And he said, well, if they could cross-cover and if the student could be here Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, another student Wednesday, Thursday. So I did that. I gave him my two very best ACNP students in the ICU. And guess what happened? Five years later, when I left to go to the University of California, he had hired 13 nurse practitioners because he said he wasn't going totally away from PA care, but he thought that the nurse practitioner came in with some holistic skills, communication skills, that the PAs didn't have but I am not you know, disparaging PAs at all. That's all right. my answer, and I know it's a little It's a little different, long. but not much, I like
2: it. So okay. um, <laughs> one of the reasons physician assistants have different licenses is the same reasons you have, these, you have these purple states, blue states, and light blue states. These are rules, so we can either change the rules or live with the rules. So the rules right now say you have to practice under the physician license as a PA. The Columbia uh, University, they have a, a PA school. So, the majority of people in the ICU on those who carry wards and services with the physician teams are actually PAs, not MPs, the majority. Absolutely no different. I went to Medical College of Wisconsin to do a site visit for a study we were doing, and I looked in the ICU, and there was the attending, the resident, the intern, the nurse practitioner, the PA. I said, Whoa, how does this work out? And they said, What do you mean, how does it work out? We're a team. I said, Got it. So, actually, Seamless between theirs. It's a different practice. Traditionally, physician assistants have been with surgeons because they would sew up the leg after, the, after you did the bypass surgery. They would fix the leg, they graft a vein from the leg, but then the leg needs to look nice, so they would make sure it was sewn up nicely. And they were great at that. Uh, and the, the, the surgeon who did the, the heart <laughs> surgery really wanted to do the heart surgery, not the leg surgery. Okay, so it turned out. PA's has really got a, a, marker, a market in the, the, physici- the surgical world much more than the medical world. PA schools are changing to be more balanced now. So actually, I think that there's just going to be two different sources of individuals to come in. There will be a different starting point, though. I agree with Dorian. There's a different frame of reference when you start. I think that's what happens in the next two or three years, to so see what happens to your frame of reference. Because I'm willing to bet you are a uh, recent resident, uh, probably just last week, because she looks pretty young. Our recent <laughs> resident will have a different perspective in care, three years, five years, than she than she did when she came out, mm-hmm. right? Just because your experience changes. So.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: It'd be, if you didn't, that'd be surprising to me, actually. Mm-hmm. So I think that they may—they're not interchangeable, but they're going to be blended much more.
1: Other questions? Do you? Do you have? Oh, Sharon, were you next? No, no, go ahead. Uh, We're over here.
2: We promised over over here.
5: here. We promised over
1: here. Over here, and then the gentleman (laughs) right here, and
5: Sharon. Uh, I'd like to know know what the um, medical community here at the university is doing to move towards the ACO model or the patient-centered medical home, and how that is going to impact your curriculum. It's going to require collaboration. It's going to require your nurses to step up to a different level and be coordinators of care, and how you're preparing for that and what steps... Are being worked in that direction.
2: Okay, so um, so the accountable care organization uh, has about every medical center paralyzed right now because we have to jump, but if we jump too early, we lose our shorts. If we jump too late, we lose our shorts. So we're actually trying to figure out when to jump across the Grand Canyon. So we're actually worried about it. That said, we also know we gotta we can't wait till the last second to jump. So our primary care group is actually very interested in medical homes. They are setting up, we're not exactly the uh, Stanford model, which is the ambulatory ICU, which takes the mm-hmm. most sick uh, patients to, to uh, uh, be under this group, and they basically have them check in. We will be uh, utilizing uh, a combination of home health, grand Aides. Uh, do you all know what grand Aides are? So this is our previous dean of the medical school provost, yeah. uh, previous prior pre- previous provost, Where in Virginia, because of the law, it will be patient care assistance going to the homes of patients who have been recently discharged and and feeding back information to the nurse practitioners in the call center. So we'll avoid readmissions that way and take care of the patients that way. Uh, So it'll be a much uh, lower cost. We're also investing in telemedicine to do some of the communication, which is also part of the home health project as well. So we are working on telemedicine. We're working on grand age. We're working on uh, nurse practitioner centers uh, that are going to be the intake for that. We are working on uh, better discharge planning. Like, it's amazing, but it turns out. Uh, so we did something years ago that apparently it was, uh, we didn't know that we were going to become leaders in this. But um, when you go to a hotel, what times is out? checkout?
3: Eleven. How many of your patients
2: leave the hospital by noon? I, I can tell you it's 20% across the country, maybe 25%. We got it up to 45 to 50%. It cut down our readmissions because you know what happens when you get home before 5? Your antibiotics show up before 5. Your oxygen shows up before 5. My gosh, we actually planned your discharge as opposed to shoving you out the door. So we're working on things like that for the accountable care organizations because readmission rates are going to be really the uh, sore point there. Uh, so the medical home would really be telemedicine, grand aids, uh, and primary care is actually changing their flavor on how to do that. I don't know if that answers exactly your question,
1: I think everything I've said about how we're going to train people together fits into this. And then having people be astute. I appreciated what you said about not being part of some of these organizations, but we're kind of encouraging nurses to be part of organizations and get their voice out there so that our professional societies will actually represent
5: us. all of us.
1: And uh, this gentleman, and then you share.
4: Back to the Affordable Care Act. Are there any financial incentives that can be used creatively to, pr- uh, to promote collaboration?
1: Great question.
2: I actually think the incentive is the readmission rate for us, to, for the collaboration. Uh, quality, they're going to start charging for value-based purchasing, so I think that's another opportunity. The incentive is unfortunately holding on to your money. Wouldn't it be nice to have an incentive to get more money, but that ain't happening. This is actually holding on to your money. Uh, Because the pot's not changing. Uh, It's shrinking, if anything. So I think the collaboration will be how to find, how to improve patient satisfaction, patient service, patient quality for inpatient and outpatients, and that's going to have to be a collaborative approach. Uh, I will tell you that it only takes one person along the whole chain of care to blow it. It's like railroad ties. If you go in and the front desk person is mean, you've had a bad visit, right? Right? On the back end, you want to make sure your care that you don't get readmitted. So um, we used to do, uh, in town, it used to be postpartum care. They'd make home visits for free. Mm -hmm. What a ticket for wanting to have your baby at that hospital. Can't afford it anymore, so they don't Mm -hmm. do it anymore. Mm -hmm. I think it's really going to be how we work as a team and how we communicate as a team. And I think communication's really our weakest Mm -hmm. weakest link in the whole thing, because now it's all electronic. So, I just wait to check on the next page. And you know, it's a, if it's important, it will show up on the screen. How many people use Epic or something like that right now? So, it's, uh, it's actually not bad, but it's a change.
1: I think it was a great question. Again, I, I think that the more we try to look at the future and how we can work better together, you know, and what those drivers will be, um, if we can produce people that are going to choose to work in places that have good collaboration to strengthen it. I think that's one of, the, one of the answers. A lot of us are on the Virginia Health Reform Task Force that the governor has started. Um, and whatever your political persuasions, I think putting us in the room together. You know, I'm sitting next to docs that are, you know, a little older than me. And we're just having these conversations because at the end of the day, we all want the same thing. You know, and it's just how we can get there and, and how we can convince people as we started out with your president about fear. What are people afraid of, you know? So that would
5: be my hope. Sharon, I think you have a question, and we're coming down to the, coming down to a five more minutes. Just one comment first. Mm-hmm. I think if we all start to look at the patient as the key piece, and not about where our proprietary mm-hmm. thoughts are, mm-hmm. we get to a different outcome. And the other mm-hmm. thing related mm-hmm. to that, and I had some experience early on, like before the first round of healthcare back in the uh, late '80s, early '90s, and Uh, shifting certain types of high cost care cardiac surgeries transplants into a global payment mechanism really shifted the way people work together because all of a sudden the incentives were there like the accountable care organizations to look at the patient first, see what's going to work for that patient and if that patient lives out in southwest Virginia and they don't have a ramp then we would figure out how to get a ramp so they didn't have to walk those eight steps. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's that kind of innovation and creativity that I think will create the opportunities for communication Mm -hmm. and collaboration. And my question is, how do you think we can integrate this piece in with the public health system so that we then don't have duplicate systems going on?
2: Mm -hmm. That's a good question. So um, the nice thing about public health systems is every county has one, right? Mm -hmm. So if we can't... Getting back to your point, if we can't get people to uh, counties, we can leverage the public health system. Mm -hmm. I will tell you that the public health group is too short. Uh, There are not enough people. And the problem is the government's not going to increase it because it costs money. So the question is how do we partner so they do some of the work and we do some of the work together. And I actually, I I don't know, I didn't think about that. That's a, Mm
1: -hmm. a good idea. I'm getting some of my sharp, bright graduates to go into public health. One of them, um, Tori Tucker, is just leaving to go to uh, the visiting nurse service in New York City. So I think, you know, and I'm an acute care diehard, as are you, and so we really try to get more people to be hospital-based nurses. That's where 65% of nurses go. But there are some great jobs out there to keep people healthy in their homes and, and do a lot of prevention work. You know, we talk prevention all the time but what are we really doing about it? So if we can get some of our sharp Bright graduates to go into that specialty. So the
2: top reasons to be admitted to my service are smoking, alcohol, drugs. I don't have this trauma unit, so I don't have trauma. Mm-hmm. And medical uh, medication mishaps.
1: Mm-hmm. So
2: actually, we have great reasons to fix these. Right,
1: and have public health nurses taking care of a lot of that at home. Um, I think Obesity. we are only ready for like one more question and then we'll summarize and thank you all for coming um any one more question
3: yes i just just simply want to say thank you buzz for my lecture next semester (laughs) Uh, in in the role course and i do work with a lot of physicians assistants in new york and and they are looking to change their name now to be more autonomous. I don't know if you've seen that here, but it's a big discussion in the field. What's their name gonna be? Uh, phys- uh, one is physician associate, but then someone mm-hmm. said they can't do that, so I don't know what the ultimate yeah. will be. But, but I have to say that I think if nursing does not leverage the future of nursing report, mm-hmm. the IOMS yeah. report that was funded yeah. by Robert Wood Johnson, will never move forward, because mm-hmm. that's probably the greatest Uh You know, it's like another white paper that, you know, and and it's too bad that for me I think physicians probably should have been mentioned more in that. Mm -hmm. It seemed, you know, a perfect example that we could be team players together. But I know where I practice as a nurse practitioner, there is no difference in the PAs and the NPs. And I think it's a lot of workforce patterns throughout the United States Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. have PAs functioning, Mm -hmm. um, Sure. as MPs, so, I mean, as an NP, would. I hate the word mid-level provider, though. You know, I, I was going to just, I was going to end with better. that. I made
1: him take Johns.: Please! wasn't it was a quote from it the paper! A quote from somebody, <laughs> this mid-level provider and physician extenders, you know, what's in a name? I was wondering if anybody was going to say that. We really are trying to move off that language, but I can, I can understand why it offends people. Um, I wanted to leave you with the optimism that I feel, though, about producing incredible nurses. We have 700 students across every program baccalaureate, master's, and nursing, um, PhD, as well as DMP. In fact, we graduated 24 PhDs this May, two weeks ago, which is pretty amazing. Was it only two weeks ago? And they're so. all coming out of the mickey. You know, and a lot of them are coming <laughs> exactly because they're well trained in our hospital. So we have an incredible partnership. Dean of Medicine and I came in the same time, and I said to him, This is my you know, most important priority is for us to be working well together. And I think that you can see it across our health system and our schools. So what
2: Dean Fontaine doesn't realize, I just learned that the average age in the ICU, the one I practice in, (laughs) she has decreased it by 10 years. I have. Because all the DMPs are going out to practice, not necessarily in the ICU, but elsewhere. There
1: you go. Well, I'm going to replenish, give you more good nurses. But the
2: experience of the average nurse is also 10 years. So it actually is still okay.
1: That's good. um, Do you want to have a final
2: Comment? I want to thank Dean Fontaine for uh, partnering. thank you. Um, Thank you very much. thank you, Dori. Uh, I think that we actually have, uh, I think the quote about change is the only thing that we know is going to happen. It's going to happen. We have to figure out how to make it work and how to make it work right. Uh, And it has to be faster than going through medical school and nursing school. We need to change with the practitioners now as well as the future practitioners, and I think we have challenges.
1: All right, thank you all for coming. Amy, thank ABTI. you. Thank you. So much.